brand new. We're glad to have them with us. They had a great ministry Wednesday night with our uh, with our youth, and so we encourage everybody to be a part of that. Bring your friends. Great, great, great things are going to happen. Genesis chapter 1, we're going to be focusing in today on verses 26 through 31. Genesis chapter 1, focusing in specifically on verses 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock and all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life, and that is what happened. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed and morning came, marking the sixth day. Now, a few weeks ago, we started out in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And we're just going to be walking through Genesis, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, for a little while. And for a few weeks, we're just camping out on these verses because these verses here cause us to think about some things that are going on in our own culture today that I think we need to think about and talk about in light of what God's Word has to say to us. And I have been encouraging you in these weeks, and, and, and next week will be another extremely important message, encouraging you to really listen, really listen closely. If you miss part of what I say, you might hear something wrong. You might think you heard something, but it all goes together, so, so you can't kind of check out and check back in. Let's discipline our hearts, discipline our minds, and I want to say thank you because you have done that. There is evidence that you have been listening. Because I said last week that I would love to have an old hound dog sitting on my porch. And so Pastor Chris got me a, a hound dog so that I could sit it on my porch. And I've said that I always blew out my birthday candles wishing for a horsey and that never worked. And this past week was my birthday and I got a book, the complete book of horses, and I got a horsey. So this is wonderful. You guys have proving that you are listening and applying what we're saying. Um, the only problem is I won't be able to tell that story anymore of not being able to get a horsey for my birthday. But thank you so much for that. Thank you for focusing in. We're continuing our series in the book of Genesis. We are at the beginning of the book of beginnings. And the big idea in this series is that the first story in the Bible tells us some of the most foundational truths about God and humanity, and we're finding six of them in these opening chapters, and we've just gotten to a few of them so far. Number one, God exists, and He is the Creator. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Number two, the biblical creation story makes perfect sense. Last week, we got into the third foundational truth, that humanity was created in the image of God, and we said that the image of God is in you. And today we're sticking with this third foundational truth about the image of God. Not only is the image of God in you, but the image of God is in every human being. 
The image of God is in every human being. The image of God is not just in the followers of Jesus Christ, but in every human. Again, today and next week, in some ways, these might be difficult messages. I want you to stick with me. I want you to hear me out. The Bible deals with the whole of our lives. The Bible deals with controversial subjects. And everybody who considers themselves Christians do not agree with one another on all of the issues. I want to say from the beginning, as I said last week, I'm not angry. I don't want to come off as angry at anyone. My goal, my goal, my goal is to speak the truth in love. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, we have to speak the truth in love. I don't have all the answers, but if I know an answer and someone disagrees with me, I want to speak the truth to that person, but I also want to be heard as loving that person, not shouting them down. So let's think a moment about our culture war, what we call the culture war here in the United States of America. Almost everyone in our society talks about the culture war. Discussions about the culture war are not limited to Christians, non-Christians, people who do not even claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. They're talking about our culture war. News people, politicians, bloggers, activists of all kinds acknowledge that we in America are currently engaged in what is called a culture war. Now, what happens in a war? People get hurt. People get killed. And the heart of God is grieved. Humanity shows its fallen state. Humanity shows how broken it became in Genesis chapter 3. We'll get into that in a month or two. That's how long it's going to take us to get there. But we're going to get to Genesis chapter 3 where everything broke. I happen to believe that the effects of the fall, the first sin of man that brought sin and curse and death into our lives, I happen to believe that the effects of the fall are getting stronger every day. The effects of the curse of sin that came on the world in Genesis chapter 3 are getting stronger every day. It's not static. It is worse now. The effects of the fall, the effects of the curse, it is worse now than it was that first day when the world broke and Adam and Eve left the garden, and it has been getting worse ever since. Now, I love the song, It's a Wonderful World. Louis Armstrong has got to be the one who does it best. I can't do it like him, but, you know, I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and for you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Louis Armstrong, he's like, I see skies of blue, clouds of white, bright blessed day, dark sacred night. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. <laughs> and it is a wonderful world. It's a wonderful world, but it's a broken world. 
Think of what this wonderful world would have been like if it had not been broken in Genesis chapter 3. As wonderful as this world is, it is not the world God intended. People are like, people are like, well, why is God allowing this? Why is God allowing that? If there's a God, why did this happen? Why did that? The answer to all of those questions is in Genesis chapter 3. The world's broke. Here's the good news. The reason Jesus came was to fix broken people in the midst of a broken world. He came to fix broken people in the midst of a broken world. But the world is still broke. Even when we are in the process of being fixed, the world is still broke. The more population grows, the more broken people there are on the planet. And because there's more broken people on the planet, the world becomes more and more broken all the time. We, the church, we are supposed to be in the restoration business, but often the restoration business in this broken world is like trying to pitch water out of a leaky canoe and the water keeps pouring in faster than we can pitch the water out. So in any war, including the culture war, followers of Jesus... Followers of Jesus get pulled into doing things that we believe are absolutely necessary, but are certainly not part of the original plan of God. We have to do things we think are necessary, but they're not part of God's original plan before the fall happened in Genesis chapter 3. And we justify our actions and we justify our words out of the necessity of dealing with a fallen world. But I want you to remember as we're going through these messages right now we are still in genesis chapter 1 and 2 in this teaching we're talking about the ideal as god intended it before the world broke and the ideal is what jesus came to bring back to our hearts and our minds when he said the kingdom of god is near because the kingdom of god is in us so we are supposed to take this ideal we're supposed to take the ideal of genesis chapter 1 and 2 before the world broke into our culture we take a renewed attitude into our culture, not the secondary justifications of we have to do this because we're fallen and we're dealing with a fallen world. So what am I saying? I'm saying that the image of God is still in everyone. The image of God is still in everyone, in every human being. Somewhere deep inside of every person, inside of every broken and hurting person somewhere inside of them is the image of God people are trying to figure out today why we have so many mass shootings horrible tragedy in our culture it's because the world is broke and because the world is broke the family is broke and we get angry at the mass shooter but the mass shooter hasn't had a father. The father he had either abandoned him or abused him. And the grandmother that's now trying to raise the mass shooter, she's dealing drugs out of the back door of her house or in the parking lot at Walmart. So the mass shooter who's mowing down children in the schools, the disgruntled worker who goes to work, and kills his co-workers so that a husband is now going to have to raise his three elementary and junior high school kids on his own without their mother. That mass shooter is broken. He's a broken person. 
When any culture abandons the plan of God, and in our problems, we're not looking to renew the plan of God. Our culture is moving farther and farther and farther away from the plan of God. And when any culture abandons the plan of God, we allow our brokenness to grow, and we end up with more broken people and more hurt people. And hurt people hurt people. True. Hurt people hurt people. So, Pastor, are you saying that the mass shooter is a victim? Yes, of course. The mass shooter is a victim. That does not excuse his actions. I'm not saying that. Again, listen to every word I say. Doesn't excuse his actions, but he is a victim. He is a broken person who is acting out in such a way to bring absolute destruction on everything around him. He's saying, I'm so mad at the world for what it has done to me. I'm so mad about what my father has done to me. I'm so mad that my girlfriend has abandoned me. I'm so mad about how everyone at the school mocks me and makes fun of me. I'm mad at that stupid boss who fired me. They refused to give me the promotion. They gave it to the person who kisses up to him at the bar on the weekends. I'm so mad about this. I'm going to burn the whole house down. I'm going to kill people. I'm going to take as many of them with me as I can. And then I'm going to kill myself before they can parade me in front of the cameras. That's what's happening in the minds and that happens because the world is broke but here's what genesis chapter 1 tells us the image of god is still somewhere in that person the muslim terrorist the image of god is in that person the abortionist the image of god is in that person The politician who is promoting so-called values that are contributing to the destruction of our society, the image of God is in that person. The politician and the judge who actually hate the way our country has been and they hate the way our country is, so they want it dismantled so they can have the country and rebuild the country that they want, the image of God is in them too. The gay, the lesbian, the drag queen reading at a story hour in kindergarten. The image of God is in those people. The man who thinks they're a woman, the woman who thinks they're a man, the boy who thinks they're a girl, the girl who thinks she's a boy, the person who thinks they're non-binary or pansexual, the educators who confirm all of this, the doctors who perform the surgeries, and the politicians who support it all. The image of God is still in them. think we forget that sometimes it's truth it's hard hard truth and we forget that in our zeal in our culture war so what do we do about this what do we do with this truth so in genesis chapter 3 the world breaks it's more broken now than it ever has been but in genesis chapter 1 and 2 god put his image in humanity And for all the brokenness, the image of God is still there. For all the brokenness, the image of God is still in every person. It's in all of us. What do we do do about that? In 1988, I'm pastoring in Bell Fountain, Ohio, and I felt like the Lord called me to be a missionary to Muslims. That was hard. The stereotype is Muslims hate Christians. Muslims kill people, especially Christians. Especially missionaries, especially pastors. Muslims commit terrorist acts. Of course, that's not all of them, but it's many. And, and we're told that, that 
Most Muslims are peace-loving, but when Sharon and I went to graduate school, Islamic studies, we learned that Islamic jihad, meaning holy war, that is the unspoken sixth pillar of every aspect of Muslim belief. Even the so-called peace-living Muslims believe in Islamic jihad, holy war. It might be defined in different ways, but it's still there. And so I'm on my way to the Philippines to become a missionary to the Muslim area of the Philippines, an area that's lawless, an area that, that is, they call it a... Uh, what, what is the word when they don't pay any attention to the government and the government says, yeah, you just do whatever you want. The word is uh, escaping me, but it's a self-autonomous, autonomous. The Muslim area in the Philippines is autonomous. That means you do what you want. And we're not going to bother you. I met Sharon after I was already appointed and accepted to be a missionary of the Philippines to the Muslims. And after just a couple of weeks, I thought there ain't no, there ain't no point in wasting time. Ain't no point in getting emotionally involved if she doesn't understand what's going to happen. And so I told her that we might be going to our deaths. If she marries me, we could be going to our deaths. We're going we're gonna to potentially be going and living in a very dangerous Muslim area in the Philippines. She was willing to marry me anyway. Gotta wonder if she's all there. <laughs> so at our wedding, if you watch a, the, you know, the old VHS grainy wedding video, we're, we're, we're kneeling at the communion table and, and, and you can see me weeping and pulling out my hanky and crying and wiping the snot away. And I, I'm, not, I'm not crying because I'm overjoyed at being married to this wonderful girl. I'm, I'm literally at that communion table. I'm, I'm, I'm crying and praying for Muslim people. Asking God to help us reach them because we were going just a few months after we got married. Why would we go? Why would we become missionaries to people who hated us? Why would, we, why would we become missionaries to people who wanted to kill us? Because the image of God is in them. The image of God is in them and God put a love in our heart for them. Now, our path did not end up in that fulfillment. The Holy Spirit took us so far. And then he began to close doors. And he led us in a different direction, but our heart still wants to see Muslim people come to know Jesus. And, and when I came back, I talked with a pastor who supported us, who was a strong missionary supporter. And he said, he said, Randy, when I was your age, he said, I wanted to go to Borneo. He said, I never got there. He said, you got farther than I did. He said, but, but by being a pastor, I have diversified. And, and he gave more to missions through the years and supported missions more and had a greater effect on missions from a local pastorate than he than he ever would have if he had been one single missionary out in Borneo. And so we support a number of these missionaries. A number of them go to the Muslim world. Jesus still loves them. And Jesus still wants us to know that the image of God is in them. You know, in, in missions we talk about unreached people groups. If, if like less than 5% of a certain tribe, ethnic group has heard a witness of the gospel, then they are considered by missiologists an unreached people group. As a whole, that people group has not had an adequate witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've had little to no presentation of the real story. We would say that a number, I'm not going to mention them. I, I had them in my notes and I was going to mention them, but then I realized some of these missionaries are, are ministering in very sensitive places. We can't because this is going to be on the internet we can't really say who's ministering where but we have people that are part of our missions team outreach that are ministering in some very difficult places to 
mostly unreached people who have never really heard the gospel of Jesus. So we would say that about just about any Muslim group anywhere in the world. We would say that about most of the people in China, most of the people in North Korea. They have not had an adequate witness. And so the Chinese government, listen to me, the Chinese government and the North Korean government and the Iranian government and the Syrian government, they may be the political opponents of the United States of America and we may feel a certain way about the policy of our government, but the people, not the government, but the people in those countries, every person from the beggar on the street to the leaders of the countries, they have the image of God in them. And we have to see them from Jesus' perspective. We have to look at people from Jesus' perspective, not from the political viewpoint of the United States of America. Otherwise, we are seeing things only from a human point of view. And when Jesus told his disciples that he was going to die, and Peter said, no, Lord, never, never, I'll die before you, Lord. You, you, no, no. Look at what Jesus said to Peter, Matthew 16, 23. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You are a very dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not God's. We're like Peter a lot. <laughs> Peter would think something from a human point of view and he would mouth out about it. I, I, I do that. I see things in my human point of view and I sound off about it. But Jesus said you're seeing things just from a human point of view. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.16, we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. I'm not sure I can say that as confidently as Paul did, but that's where we need to go. Let's look at what he said around that. Going back to verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 5, Paul said, if it seems we're crazy, it's to bring glory to God. And if we are in our right minds, it's for your benefit. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone, not just the people who agree with us or have the same kind of lifestyle we do. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. We have got to get to this place. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun, and all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ, and God has given us this task of reconciling people, every person in the image of God. We have a task to bring them back to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. It's hard for us to let Jesus make an appeal through us if we're just spouting political condemnation all the time. Hello? 
Paul says we speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So we're, we're not to look at anyone from a human point of view. We are supposed to be looking at people the way Jesus looked at his killers from the cross. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. There's not an enemy in our culture, so-called enemy in our culture today, greater than the ones who put Jesus on the cross. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This means the Muslim. This means the politician who is working against our beliefs. This means the abortionist. This means the person promoting a gay lifestyle. This means the person promoting the transgender agenda on children. How do we how do, we do this? How do we, how do we love them the way we're supposed to love them? Let me tell you something. I can't. I can't do it. I cannot love those people. Only the Holy Spirit through me can. I have to let the Holy Spirit fill me with the love and personality and fruit of Jesus Christ. Don't get mad at me for saying that because you can't do it either. And maybe you're totally on the opposite side of my political or religious worldview and way of life. Then you've got to say the same thing about how you view me and people of my ilk. Because you can't love me without Jesus either. <laughs> We've all got to do it. By the way. While I'm wading into difficult waters, just let me go ahead and swim in the deep end. Why, why, who, listen, 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 listen. Why do we look at the sin of homosexuality differently than the sins of heterosexuality? I'm not saying homosexual sin is not against God's best desires for people. Sin is sin not... It's because it's not God's ideal, God's best plan for people. I'm, so I'm not saying homosexual sin is not against God's plan. I am saying that we have gotten used to heterosexual sin. Right? We just accept premarital sex in the church and we don't even think anything about it anymore. I don't hardly know of a pastor who's done a wedding recently for a couple that hasn't already been having sex. We just accept it. It's no big deal. We, we, we've nearly totally accepted it in the church. Heterosexual adultery. Oh, yeah, that happens. We look the other way. But let someone say they're gay. God forbid! Right? Somebody say amen if you know it's true. It's how it is. It's how it is. We've become comfortable with some sins when we shouldn't, and with other sins we fail to see that the image of God is in that person. How do we reach them? How do we love them? Pastor, we're in Camden, Tennessee. We don't have those problems here. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. Tell me another one. Yes, we do. Why, why do we believe that some people are unreachable? We believe they're unreachable because we don't believe the image of God is in them. We're talking about Genesis chapter 1, the image of God. We believe they're unreachable because we don't love them. Let's just admit it. Let's confess our sins 
and confess our faults to one another. We don't try to reach people. We don't believe they're reachable because we don't see the image of God in them. And we really don't love them. So we'll go back to the idea of an unreached people group. Those who haven't really had an adequate full sharing of the gospel to them. The LGBT community is an unreached people group. Just as much as a tribe on an island somewhere in the middle of the South Pacific Ocean who has never had a missionary and they're still practicing cannibalism. The LBGTQ community in America is an unreached people group. They have not had a witness of the gospel. We will have compassion and we will send missionaries to the tribe and we will send money and we will pray and we will love because we see the need and we have a heart of compassion. But many people are in the LGBTQ community because they have had a different gospel preached to them, a different gospel a different telling of the good news i have a a friend that i know had lunch with him it's been a year and a half since i've seen him had lunch with him he is a assemblies of god national youth evangelist he's he's about my age and he's still working with you for 40 years he's preaching camps this summer all over the country he leads a ministry that trains youth pastors he is he's a youth guy youth guy youth guy youth guy youth pastor youth he, he had a wife who passed away from cancer. He continued to serve the Lord. He's got kids. He's remarried. He's a fantastic guy. Man of God. Raised in the Assemblies of God. His brother raised in the Assemblies of God right alongside of him. His brother was President Trump's ambassador to Germany and acting director of national intelligence. And he's married to another man. And believes he's following Jesus. He's had a different gospel preached to him. He accepted a different gospel. And that's the way it is with many, many, many. See, some, some people have told them they're loved, which is true. And they're valued. And whether we want to confront it or not, and whether it is misconstrued notion or not, their perception is that they are not welcome in the church. That they would not be welcome in our church because they are not loved by Christians because they are our enemies in the culture war. And so there is an unreached people group, not in Africa, but walking right here among us, and they are not loved by the church, and they are not prayed for by the church. And so rather than us loving them and reaching them, we keep them at a distance like the New Testament leper, and we condemn them. All because we really don't have in our minds that the image of God was put in that person. So we're told to speak the truth in love. This is hard. This is one of my biggest goals, but it's hard to speak the truth in love. I'm sure I'm not hitting the balance exactly right myself, but it's my goal. So you see, some people are opting for one above the other, but not both. Some people in the church are saying, well, we just want to love them. So we're just going to love them. So I'm prominent, very prominent. One of the most prominent pastors in our culture today was supposed to pray at the inauguration ceremony of a president a couple of presidents ago. He was taken off of the agenda, not allowed to pray at the inauguration because they found a tape where he said 20-something years ago homosexuality was a sin. And he came out and said, well, I haven't said anything about that for 18 years. I like the guy. He's a great guy. He's tremendously influential, and I think he's still a good guy and a good pastor and a good preacher and a good evangelist. He leads a massive ministry. You all would know it if I told you about it. But he chose in love to avoid an aspect of the truth. 
And then there are those on the other side, and that's the side that many of us might fall on is, we'll speak the truth, and I've got friends that's like, I'm telling you this truth because I love you. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't tell you the truth. I'm just going to tell you the truth. And there ain't one dag-nabbit bit of love in anything they say. What they're saying is as true and straight as an arrow can fly, but there ain't no love in it at all. Just because you say you're saying it because you love them doesn't mean you're saying it in love. So God help us. We got to speak the truth in love. Somehow, I have to speak the truth about sin, but I have to do it not to condemn the sinner, but to let the sinner know that they're loved, that there's forgiveness. That there's a better plan, that there's a better way, that there's a greater plan for their lives because they're made in the image of God. Somehow, that's what all of us have to do if we're going to be followers of this person called Jesus. Because that's what Jesus did. Somehow, if we're going to follow Jesus, do what Jesus did, we have to go to the sinner's house because Jesus went to the sinner's house. He went to the tax collector's house. The tax collector just wasn't an IRS man taking his 15% of the people's salary. No, the tax collector was the Jewish person who stole from his own people, sided with the Roman government. He was a traitor. He put his own people into poverty. He took food out of children's mouths. And Jesus went to his house, and Jesus ate his food that was purchased with corruption money. That's what Jesus did. Somehow, we've got to welcome the lesbian and the totally confused transgender person in the same way that Jesus took prostitutes and sex workers into his arms and loved them. What did he get for loving them? They condemned him. They condemned Jesus for loving them. How do we do this? How do we get past our prejudices and hates? How do we love People, we have to see Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. We have to see that every human being has the image of God in them. We have to speak the truth. But are we speaking the truth in such a way that the way we speak the truth is actually keeping the person from hearing the Holy Spirit? Because here's the deal. I've tried to convict people of sin in the past, and I can't do it. I've tried to convince people of their sin in the past. I can't do it. Only the Holy Spirit, John chapter 16, only the Holy Spirit can convict and convince people of sin. I can actually tell somebody the truth in a way that keeps the Holy Spirit from doing his part of the job. It's my job, it's your job to share good news. Good news with every person. It's not our job to change the culture. It's not our job to convince anybody of anything. It's our job, our commission to share the good news about Jesus with everyone. Now, when I was raising money to be a missionary to the Muslims, I quoted Romans chapter 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call upon him to save them unless they believe in him? How can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? How can they hear about him unless someone tells them? How will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That's why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. Is that true for the Muslim world, but not true for the LGBTQ community? Are all people in sin? Yes. Does Jesus love all people no matter what their sin? Yes. 
Do we recognize the sin in the world and the sin in humanity? Yes. Do we love all people in spite of their sin? Yeah. 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 I don't think so. I don't think we do. So somehow, church, we've got to figure out how to speak the truth in love. Not just speak the truth in a way that hinders the work of the Holy Spirit, but speak the truth in a way that still leaves that person open to the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. I haven't figured this out yet, okay? I haven't got it figured out, but I'm trying to. That's my goal. Because the image of God is in every person. The image of God is in Abby Johnson. Abby Johnson was fiercely determined to help women in need. And that desire led her to a career with Planned Parenthood. During her eight years with Planned Parenthood, Abby quickly rose through the organization's ranks and she became a clinic director. But Abby became increasingly disturbed by what she witnessed. Abortion was a product Planned Parenthood was selling, not an unfortunate necessity that they were fighting to decrease. But still, Abby loved the women that entered into her clinic, and she loved her co-workers. And despite a growing unrest within her, she stayed on, and she strove to serve women in crisis. All of that changed on September 26, 2009, when Abby was asked to assist with an ultrasound-guided abortion. Years in an abortion clinic, she'd never been a part of one or witnessed one. She watched in horror as a 13-week baby fought for and ultimately lost its life at the hand of the abortionist. At that moment, she fully realized what abortion actually was and what she had dedicated her life to. And as it washed over Abby, a dramatic transformation had occurred. Desperate and confused, Abby sought help from a local pro-life group. She swore that she would begin to advocate for life in the womb and expose abortion for what it truly is. So today, Abby travels all across the globe sharing her story, educating the public on pro-life issues, advocating for the unborn, and reaching out to abortion clinic staff who still work in the industry. She is the founder of a ministry called And Then There Were None, a ministry designed to assist abortion clinic workers in transitioning out of the industry. To date, this ministry has helped over 430 workers leave the abortion industry. She has eight children. Now, some of you may have watched the movie Unplanned. If you haven't watched it, I recommend it. It is rated R. It's rated R because the people who gave the ratings didn't want it to, they didn't want very many people to see this movie. That's why they gave it an R rating. They figured a bunch of Christians and others wouldn't go see the movie if it was rated R, and they blamed it on there's one bloody bathroom scene. That's all it is. This, this thing ain't even close to a PG-13. So don't let that scare you. But if you watch the movie Unplanned about this story I just told you, you will see depicted those who protested at the clinic. Abortion, anti-abortion, pro-life protesters. And they offered to assist the women, but they did so in a peaceful way, in a prayerful way, in a loving way. And their love was not anger, not shouting, not condemnation. Their love was part of what transformed one of our country's leading abortionists into a follower of Jesus Christ and an advocate for life. And she's got a worldwide ministry. I don't, I don't have all the answers, but somehow, some way, those who went to her Planned Parenthood clinic simply to pray and love, they did not get in the way of the Holy Spirit. It took them months 
this is what we've got to figure out how to do with everybody that we disagree with. 1 John chapter 4, anyone who does not love God does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. If I'm going to be like God, then I must love, and his love is for everyone because he put his image, a part of himself, in all of humanity. We have got to stop looking at things from a human point of view. Every person is created in the image of God. Every person has the image of God stamped in them. A piece of God is in the victims and the perpetrators, the one sitting beside you in church, the one you love to go to dinner with, and the one whose political opinions makes your blood boil. The image of God is in them. The image of God is in every person. C.S. Lewis said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Eugene Peterson said, the story of Jesus is the story of a beloved who became a lover. Now you do it. Love your brother. Love your sister. Love your neighbor. We must love actively somehow. Somehow, if we love, it has to be put into action. Jesus got down in John chapter 13 at the Last Supper. He washed the disciples' dirty feet. In doing that, he took off his outer clothing. We have to take off some old clothes if we're going to love as Jesus loved. We're going to have to get rid of our old humanity if we are going to love as Jesus loved. So how can, we, how can we serve people who desperately need to be loved instead of lectured to? John 13, 35, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. 1 John three eighteen, dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let's show the truth by our actions. 1 John 3, 7 and 8. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for love is God. So our love has to go beyond an activity. Our love must become a way of life. Our love must become the default, not the lecture. So these verses speak of our brothers and sisters in Christ, but what about loving others as we love ourselves? We do this because the image of God is in all of us. The image of God is not just in the Jesus followers. Hopefully it's being restored in us, but it needs to be restored in all of humanity. That will be the only hope of changing the culture. Hang with me. I know these messages are a little longer than usual, but this is important. When is the last time you prayed to Jesus to ask him how he would love the people that are hard for you to love? When's the last time you prayed to ask Jesus how he would love people that are hard for you to love? In Luke chapter 15, it's what we call the lost parables, stories. Story of a lost coin, story of a lost sheep, story of a lost son. In each of them, Jesus is preoccupied with what's missing, not what's here. His heart is disproportionately for those who are not here, not those who are. And Jesus does not rest until the wandering one is found by his pursuing love and brought back home. These stories in Luke chapter 15 were sparked by the insiders who had a lack of love for the stranger. The setup, the setup for the story of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son is in Luke chapter 15 verse 1 and 2. Tax collectors, the ones who were traitors, stealing from their people, stealing food out of children's mouths, and other notorious sinners that is usually referring to the sex workers of the day. 
Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. He had the political, political traitors and the sex workers that were the biggest part of his congregation. And this made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with sinful people. Even eating with them. The word complain there, where it says teachers of religious law complain. That word complain could also be translated muttered. And Luke is the only one who uses that word in all of the New Testament. That's the only time in the New Testament that that word is ever used. He used it also when the crowd complained about Jesus going to Zacchaeus' house. Because Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Jesus is going to his house. Jesus is buddying up with the traitors and the thieves. The dirty, rotten, stinking people on the other side of the political aisle. He's going to their house. Stupid idiot. I don't want to have nothing to do with that. The same word is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament. When the people complained and muttered against Moses and Aaron. What are they doing? Where are they taking us? Where are they leading us? Well, we should have gone back to Egypt. In the wilderness, Israel begins to long for what is familiar, so they complain, they mutter, even if what is familiar is going back into their slavery. So Jesus tells three stories in Luke chapter 15 while he's walking along with his disciples through Samaria. What's Samaria? The place the Jewish people hate. The place the Jewish people never go. The disciples hated Samaritans. The disciples did not want to go into Samaria. He goes into Samaria. He tells the story of how Jesus loves everything and everyone that's lost, the despised, the ones who are looked down on by God's people. In that place, the priests begin to complain. They want what's familiar. They want what's comfortable. They want what we... All, that's what we all are comfortable with. So when things are not comfortable, we will complain. So if this message isn't comfortable, I'll expect some complaining. But Luke is pointing back. When, when Luke writes this story, he knows the people of God are going to think about. He's, Luke is telling the religious people of the day, you are just like the belly acres in Moses' time. That's what he's saying. And they knew that. And once again, God's people are complaining while Jesus is looking for the really, 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 really lost people. What's that say to us? What's that say to you? What's the Holy Spirit saying to you? For example... What if a new family comes to church and, boy, they look good, nice-looking family. They're wearing clean clothes and they've got kids and good job. And, you know, they've moved in here from another church and they've been leaders in another church. Boy, isn't it good? we got new families coming to church and they're, they're already leaders and they're Christians and they love Jesus. And then we have a couple of guys or a couple of girls who come in and are in a relationship with one another. Are we going to be just as happy that they're here as we are the family that moved in from the other Assemblies of God church where they were leaders? I know the answer to that. It's a rhetorical question. We're uncomfortable. I'm not, I'm not condoning anything, but I'll tell you what. Jesus wants the sinners. And Jesus doesn't want the sinners to come. Jesus wants us to go to them. What's the Holy Spirit saying to us? Tyler Staten said, if we want to live and love as Jesus, we must learn to love freely. And completely, not only within the safe confines of the family, but among the strangers. 
beyond the walls of the church and into the world. Compassion, compassion that stops at our family is not compassion that has matured within us. Mature compassion means that we move beyond the church family, past the holy huddle, outside our comfort zones until the stranger becomes family. We must be compassionate as our Father is compassionate. His love does not stay at home. His love is fierce compassion. It is a compassion without walls because all of humanity is made in the image of God and has a piece of God in them. So now, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? First thing we need to do is talk to Jesus about it. We need to pray. I want to ask you today, can you commit to pray? Yeah, pastor, I'll pray. What do you want me to pray for? Ask God to somehow help you to love someone that's really hard to love. That's my challenge to you. That's, that's the response to this message. Ask God to help you love somebody that's really hard to love. And then take your prayer one step further. Ask God how you can serve that person. Don't, don't ask God what you need to say to that person. Oh, God, give me the words that will convince them. Ask God how you can serve them. First, you've got to love them. And if you don't do that, you've got to ask for that. But then ask how you can serve them. Does someone's sin repulse you so much that you won't have a meal with them? If that's the case, you're not like Jesus because Jesus had... His meals with the repulse, repulsive people. Jesus ate with the people whose sins repulsed God. And Jesus himself, he was repulsed by their sin because he's God. But what he was repulsed by was, it, it's, it's, not, it's not just the sin or the sinner. It's the result. It's the destruction and pain that sin brings. It's because sin is less than the great plan that God has for us. It's because we're all living post-Genesis chapter 3. We're not living in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Jesus is calling us back to Genesis 1 and 2. And he's calling us to love those, even those that he is repulsed by their sin. But he eats with them at their house. And loves them. And serves them. So what are we going to do? The image of God is in every person. Would you stand with me? And today, I'm going to do things just a little bit differently. And I felt this even during the message. I just think we all need to come and pray about this. And so I'm just going to open up the altars. And I would invite those who... If you're a follower of Jesus and you want to be responsive to what Jesus is calling, I believe, calling us as a church family to do in this message, I think we need to be prayer warriors. I think we need to be people of prayer. And so I want to invite you to come. It's what these altars are still here for, for us to come and kneel at the altars. If the altars get full, kneel along the front seats. If the front seats get full, turn around and kneel wherever you are, but let's pray. Let's